Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Very special programming today featuring Lonnie Bunch. He's the 14th Secretary of the Smithsonian. And David Rubenstein, host of the David Rubenstein Show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations, speaks here from the Udvar-Hazy Center. That's part of the Smithsonian Museum, and it's near Dulles Airport. That's right, and Rubenstein begins here by asking Bunch about being the first historian and the first black person selected as the head of the museum complex. Let's listen in. That's right, and I'm very proud and glad to be with you today. And I should disclose that I was the chairman of the Smithsonian at one point. I'm still on the board of the Smithsonian, but I will ask tough questions anyway. <laughs> I appreciate that. So now that you've been the secretary for a while, um, is the job as good as you thought it was going to be, and you're happy you have it? <laughs> I, I think that no one knew what it was like to lead during a pandemic. But what has happened is, as a result of that, I've really learned the wonders of the Smithsonian when it comes together. You know, the Smithsonian is often a conglomerate of museums and research centers, um, and it doesn't always blend. But because of this pandemic, people have come together, cross lines, brought their creativity, scientists, historians, educators. So for me, I'm really glad because I'm getting to see what the Smithsonian does, even in the most difficult of times, when it comes together and brings its creativity to bear. How did you operate during the COVID-19 situation? What did you do in terms of operating the zoo and all the research institutions and your 19 museums. What I realized is that once we shut down the buildings, that I needed the Smithsonian to still be operating. So we really went to everything online. We created educational opportunities, portals that would allow people to educators to get our science, our history, our art. We made it so that scholars could continue to do the research, the scientists could do the work they needed to do. But the reality is that we recognize that now, as a result of this virus, we've got to rethink so much about the Smithsonian. We've got to rethink about how we telework more effectively. We've got to think about once people come back, what does social distancing mean in a museum? Because as you know, the major thing that happens in a museum is people who don't know each other come together around an artifact like the shuttle. Um, And so are people going to want to come together um, in a time of pandemic? So we're really thinking about how do we create community even in with social distancing? So the Smithsonian is not yet open. You have two parts of it open. This museum is open and the National Zoo is open, right? Right. Um, Why did you open those two first? I wanted to be able to figure out how do we open the rest of the Smithsonian. The zoo, because it's outdoors, um, and that was easier. Um, But also this museum, because it's large, and it also has parking, because there were issues of transportation. So basically, these were the test case, which will then, if the the virus then begins to come down, to allow us slowly to open the rest of the Smithsonian. Now, where did you operate from when COVID-19 was uh, prevalent? Well, because there were some guards that had to work, I thought I would go into the office, but I realized that if I went into the office, so many other people would come in. So I ended up working from home, and I learned to master Zoom um, and sort of other technologies I'm still fighting with, but um, basically work from home every day. Now, museums have been around for thousands of years, but now with Zoom and virtual technologies, 
Why do we really need museums? Why can't you just look on the screen and see what you need to see? I think there is something powerful about the object. I mean, the fact that you can see the space shuttle um, right in front of you is really powerful. You feel the connection. I've seen throughout my career people stand in front of a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation or Chuck Berry's Candy Apple Red Cadillac, and it stimulates conversation. So that in essence, what we should do at the Smithsonian is find the right tension between tradition and innovation. We have to recognize that the traditional stuff is good and we want people to enjoy it. But now we also recognize that as a result of the pandemic, more people are comfortable receiving content digitally. So it really means that we just need to find the right balance between serving the millions that will never get to a museum and the millions that actually come to the Smithsonian. Now, during the COVID closing of the museums, uh, we had some race riots in Washington and other cities around the country in re reaction to uh, the death of a number of people, uh, such as George Floyd. Um, how is the Smithsonian reacting to that? I thought it was really important to realize that in some ways the Smithsonian's the glue that holds a nation together, and it's the kind of place that can bring people of different political points of view together. So when, the, when all of the sort of angst and the pains happened as a result of the murder of George Floyd and others, I realized that the Smithsonian had a role to play, that we should be a place that would help the public grapple with the things that have divided us. So one of the things we did was we got support from Bank of America and created a, pro, a program that looks at race, community in our shared future, to basically say, how do we create town halls, an opportunity for people to come together to talk about what has divided us? How do we use the resource of the Smithsonian, our expertise on African-American culture, to give people the kind of historical guidance to help them live their lives? Now, the Smithsonian itself, uh, what about the diversity in the Smithsonian uh, workforce and your executives who help run the museums? I think the Smithsonian, like many places, has a lot of work to do. Um, I'm very pleased that we've got some diverse leadership. Um, we've got strong, diverse, playful, and different parts of the Smithsonian, but I think that the Smithsonian needs to do a better job because if we're going to help the public grapple with these issues, we've got to model it. Now, there's a story that the uh, secretary of the Smithsonian, when they had the Lafayette Park riots, or whatever you want to call them, that he was wandering around looking for artifacts he could pick up and take to the Smithsonian. Any truth to that? Old curators can't break their habits. I was down um, at Lafayette Square talking to people, looking at some of the materials on the walls, collecting some for the Smithsonian, but really directing others, saying, here's some stuff we should have. Well, you're walking around there and you're saying, I'm the, the, the secretary of the Smithsonian, can I have this? And the police are saying, oh, sure. <laughs> I had to show my ID. Okay, so you, got, you didn't get arrested. So what's the biggest challenge you have at the Smithsonian right now, other than getting ready to, for an opening again after COVID? What's the biggest challenge? Is it fundraising, dealing with members of Congress? What is the biggest challenge? I think, first of all, the challenge is that to make sure that the Smithsonian has the stable funding it needs. Because of the pandemic, we've lost millions of dollars. People aren't going to the restaurants and shops, which has an impact on our research and on staff. So really trying to make sure we have the strongest financial model, because what it really means is we've got to rethink some things. So rather than just reopen our shops, we've got to build more e-commerce. So this is really allowing us to think creatively about what the Smithsonian should be. So let's talk about your background a moment. Um, you grew up in New Jersey? In the Garden State. 
okay, in the Garden State. And what did you want to be when you were growing up? I assume not Secretary of the Smithsonian, right? I, I didn't want, I didn't know what the Smithsonian was, but I wanted to do something with history. I've always loved history. And the story that is an absolutely true story is that my grandfather died the day before I turned five. And he would read to me, and he would read books. And one day he was reading a book, and it had a picture of school children. Um, and it was probably from the 1860s. And he said to me that the picture said unidentified children. And then he said something I've never forgotten. He said, isn't it a shame people could live their lives, die, and all it says is unidentified? And that got me trying to figure out, how do I understand what their lives were like? And I began to look at photographs as a little kid and try to imagine what were their jobs, were they happy? And it got me interested in history. So I, that was the first step. And then the second step was growing up in the town I grew up in, there were very few African-Americans. In fact, I was the only African-American in my elementary school. And there were people that treated me horribly and others that treated me wonderfully. And I thought if I understood the history of this town, maybe I'd understand right. me. When you were younger, your father would drive you to the south but you couldn't stop in many places except one place that he did take you. So we would drive from New Jersey to visit my mother's family in North Carolina, and this was in Jim Crow era. So we would load the car up with food and blankets because he knew we couldn't stop. Um, and what he was the only driver in those couldn't days. Couldn't stop because there was no because place you could. There was no place that would let black people stop. Um, and so I remember he was falling asleep, and he pulled off, and he pulled into a motor court. Um, and, you know, and he pulled in and my mother and my brother were asleep and I was watching him and he went out to smoke a cigarette and I noticed he was standing under a sign that said white only. And I was terrified. I thought something's going to happen and I was just a wreck. He finally comes back in the car. He recognizes that I'm really worried. And he said to me something I've never forgotten. He said, you know, this is my America too. And it reminded me that no matter what happened, this is part of my country, and I want to do whatever I can to make it fair. And did he ever bring you to the Smithsonian? And why did he bring you to the Smithsonian? For me, when we used to go south, we would go past the museums, or say museums in Richmond and Petersburg. And like many kids, I was a Civil War buff. And so I wanted desperately to stop. And he would always find an excuse not to stop. Um, and on the way back, I remember taking out a map and plotting, saying, OK, there are 20 miles before we get to Richmond or Petersburg. And I would sort of alert him. But he would always keep going. But then instead of driving straight to New Jersey, he pulled into Washington and he pulled in front of the Smithsonian. And he said, here is a place where you can go learn about yourself in a museum and not worry about the color of your skin. So for me, the Smithsonian right. was always a place of fairness that for a 12 or 13 year old kid, this was a place that said to me, here you can be who you want. You can learn all you want and not worry about the color of your skin. So being secretary in a way was my way of thanking an institution that embraced me when few places did. So you came to Washington to get your undergraduate education at American University mm -hmm. in, in I history. I did my graduate work there. So you're an African-American male in, this is the 1960s, 70s? No, 1970s, 70s. late 70s. So are there lots of job opportunities? <laughs> uh, there were very few teaching jobs. Um, and I remember at the end of my graduate career, um, I was broke. I was living on a teaching assistant salary, and there was a returning student. She was 40 years old.
Um, and she said to me, you should go down to the Smithsonian because her husband worked there and you could maybe get a job. And I remember saying to her, who works at the Smithsonian? It's where you take dates because it's free. I mean, that was my notion of the Smithsonian. Well, I went down and the man, her husband was the head of science, David Chowner. And he introduced me to the secretary, S. Dylan Ripley. I didn't know the secretary was. And I'm not going to get a job. So I'm in jeans. I've got a big afro. And I sit there because I'm not going to get a job. I'm very comfortable. And we talked for two and a half hours. Then he says, you know, we might want to hire you. And I said, really? I said, I wouldn't mind working at the Museum of History and Technology. And he said to me, we don't have any jobs there. We only have a job at the Air and Space Museum. And I said, I'm a 19th century historian. I know nothing about air, space, and I hate airplanes. And then he said language that was so instructive to me as a secretary. He said, young man, how much money are you making now? And I told him. He said, you make four times that if you become and work for me at the Air and Space Museum. I said, I'll become an Air and Space employee. And that's really how my career began, by luck. You also met your wife there? Air and space was everything. I met my wife there. I learned about how to be a curator there. Um, I learned about the wonders of the Smithsonian. So for me, my whole life has been shaped in part by the Smithsonian. So you were recruited away for a while to go to California and the museum there. And what was that? Um, I went away to run to be the first curator of the California African American Museum. It was the first state-funded museum that explored issues of race. And I went there before the Olympics of 1984. So my big job was to do a major exhibition on the history of blacks in the Olympics. Uh, you know, the Smithsonian taught me how to be a scholar. It didn't really teach me how to be a curator. You came back, but then you were recruited away to run the Chicago Historical Society. So you moved to Chicago. Is that right? That's right. I, I, was, at, I was at American History for 12 years and wasn't going to leave. And uh, Chicago recruited me and I really wasn't planning on going but I had a meeting with the mayor and the governor of Illinois and they said this is a city that has been tortured by race and if you could come and be the only African-American running one of our major institutions and do well what an impact you could have and that appealed to me so I came back and I came to Chicago and loved it and had planned to stay there the rest of my career um, when I got the call to think about, would you like to come back and help build the National Museum of African American History and Culture? So there was a uh, secretary then who called you, and that was Larry Small. Larry Small. And he said, come back and build this museum. And you came back, and you ultimately took the job, but why did you take it? Because there was no money, there was no land, there was no plan, and did you know all that? You know, I wasn't sure how many no's there were. Um, I knew that there was no plan and I knew that there was no site, but I didn't know there were no staff. And, um, but what I realized is that being an African-American running a major museum in Chicago nurtured my soul. I was really happy. But I realized that if I could help build this museum, we could really both nurture the souls of my ancestors, but we could help America really grapple with race. So that's what brought me back. Now, the museum opened uh, right before President Obama left office, and that was in 2016, mm -hmm. and a very memorable ceremony. But before we got to that ceremony, you had to get an architect to build a building, get a site, raise the money, and get the artifacts. So let's go through that. Uh, let's take the money. Uh, how much did it cost to build that museum? The museum basically cost $550 million to build, um, and we raised about $620 million. 
to do that. Half of it was paid by the federal government and half um, by wonderful philanthropists and donors. Did you ever think you could raise that much from the private sector when you started? When I told my mother that I had to raise that amount of money, she said, that's more money than God can count. So I wasn't sure. Um, but one of my great strengths is to be able to sort of look at the big picture and then put my head down and do the work. Right. And so slowly but surely it began to work. So when you, you got the money from the Congress and you got the money from the private sector, mm -hmm. And then you had to figure out uh, where are you going to put in the museum, artifacts. How many artifacts did you inherit? Um, zero. Um, we had no artifacts whatsoever. And at some point I thought, well, do we just do it without artifacts? But it's the Smithsonian. People come to see the Wright's Flyer or the Ruby Slipper. So we needed to find these objects. And I didn't know exactly how to do it. And one day I sort of fell asleep in front of the television. And I woke up and Antique Roadshow was on. I had never heard of it. And so I suddenly said, what a great idea. So I stole the idea, called it Saving African American Treasures, and we took curators and conservatives from around the Smithsonian and went around the country and helped people preserve grandma's old shawl right. or that 19th century photograph. And then people would bring things out and say, do you want this? And suddenly we found amazing things that I wasn't sure we could find. How many artifacts total did you get? We collected over 40,000 artifacts, and of which about 4,000 were on display. And 75% of them came from people's 75% came from basements, trunks, and attics of people's homes. Okay, and how many people have visited so far? Over 7.5 million people. And it's one of the few museums at the Smithsonian up to now where you don't, you can't just walk in because you need tickets because the demand is so great. Um, and did you expect the demand to be that great? I didn't. I knew it would be popular. It's the Smithsonian. But it really has become a pilgrimage site for many people, for African-Americans, for non-African-Americans. And we expected 4,000 people a day. We were getting 8,000 people a day. So we had to actually say you have to have tickets to get people in because the crowds were so great. So every congressman and senator is calling you for tickets, I assume? I am everybody's best friend. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's go back to the opening day. All right, so you've worked on this for how many years? 11 years. 11 years. You started with nothing. It opens in September of uh, 2016. 2016. And who was there? Who were the dignitaries? It, w it became a who's who. I mean, on the stage was President and Mrs. Bush, President and Mrs. Obama. Um, I was seated next to John Lewis. Um, the Chief Justice was there, other senior people from the Smithsonian. Um, and in the audience were a who's who. A who's almost every political figure was there. So many people from entertainment and sport. And what I was so moved by is the people who wanted to participate in the program 
Oprah Winfrey and Will Smith and Robert De Niro, so that it really became more than I could have ever imagined. It was less an opening of a museum and more a celebration of a culture. So were you worried that something would go wrong that day? I was terrified. I was terrified that um, I would mess up. I was terrified that somebody would um, not enjoy themselves. I was terrified that we wouldn't get the crowds that I hoped. And instead, we got tens of thousands of people on the mall. Um, it became an opportunity where I thought some of the best speech making I've ever heard. I thought President Bush gave a powerful speech about how um, a great nation confronts its history, doesn't run from it. President Obama talked, oh, just beautifully about what this meant to him and his family. But clearly, the late John Lewis stole the show, talked about how this museum was the culmination of the civil rights movement for him, and that this was really something that he was proudest of. And I'll be honest, I was so grateful to be able to help fulfill his dream. It was just a special day. President Bush, 43, had signed the legislation with approved the uh, museum, and President Obama was president when it was open. Uh, I think he t said to you, make sure it's open while I'm in office. Is he that right? did. He, he would say to me, you've got to let me cut the ribbon. And so that was great. I'd go to the construction people and say, I was talking to the president. He says we got to move a little quicker. Uh, so that, that helps. So, uh, okay, so most people don't have a chance to do two great things in life. One great thing is pretty good for people. You built this museum. You deserve the lion's share of the credit, if not all the credit. You take it from nothing to this great museum. It's very popular and so forth. Why did you want to be Smith's, uh, the Smithsonian secretary? Because, as your mother would say to you, what do you need that for? You already have a great job. And besides, you have the best office in, in Washington. You have a great view of the Washington Monument at the top of the African American History and Culture Museum. Why did you want this job? Because you told me to. <laughs> what, I, what I really realized is that I loved what I did. And I knew that I had the best view. I could see everything. Uh, the story is I took President Obama through the museum, and he came to my office, and he said, you got a better view than I do. And I said, well, you only worked eight years. I worked 11. Um, and, but I realized that I didn't need to accomplish anything so I could give everything to the Smithsonian. This was really my opportunity to say, how do I bring you know, more than 25 years of Smithsonian experience to the fore? How do I give back to the place that has meant so much to me? And how do I help the Smithsonian really rethink itself as a 21st century institution? Why do you regard this as uh, an important job for you to do? Because of, you're an African-American, because you're an American, why do you care about the Smithsonian so much? In part, as an American, the Smithsonian is this amazing treasure, that it really is a reservoir that the public can dip into to not just understand the past, but to have a better sense about who we are now and really point us towards a better future. It is a reservoir that says, you want to understand about space? We're here to do that. You want to understand about our history? We're also able to help you do that. You want to see the creativity of people artistically? We're here to do that as well. So in some ways, the Smithsonian really is a great source of information and creativity that I want the public to really draw from. And so I feel honored to be the secretary. I feel humbled, to be honest, to be the secretary because every day I learn something new and I want the public to be able to learn from the Smithsonian every day. Lonnie Bunch, Secretary of the Smithsonian, on the David Rubenstein Show, Peer-to-Peer -peer Conversations. And that's it for this hour of Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.